0: Okay, that's fine. All right, well, let's start with a little prayer together, okay. Let us pray to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as a well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thine unoriginate Father and thine all holy and good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Okay. Well, good afternoon, everybody. How are you? Good, thank God. Um, so uh, some of you know, some of you don't. I was, I've been sick for a few weeks, and so I'm still regaining my strength. And uh, so if my voice sounds a little raspy or a little weak, that's that's why. And we may not go the full hour and a half today. I'm not sure, depending on, on how things go. But uh, usually we go from, from 1230 to, to 2, and I try to cut it off right at or 201, you know, <laughs> as close as possible, but um, anyway, it's good to be with you guys, thank you for coming, and the number of people in class varies, usually it's like between five and ten people, and then I have some people tuning in online um, here and there, so, uh, who who are, well, one is in Kentucky, we had some people who were on um, in Clinton who were just online, but then they they just signed out and a couple more people who are not here today said they they might tune in so um, oh that's okay no worries I was just telling everyone I'm kind of still recovering feeling you know and getting my energy back and my voice isn't uh, 100% but um, but I feel way better than I did before so it was a month ago that we had our last session and we talked about the Holy Trinity and The the follow-up to talking about the Holy Trinity, when we talk about the Holy Trinity, we're essentially talking about, I used the word love probably 5,000 times during that session because the, the core of the Orthodox life and belief is love. Everything is love because God is love. And I often tell people that there is no, there is There is no love without persons, persons in relation to one another. And if God is love, God has to be a kind of being or a communion of beings that are in communion with one another, that are living a life of love in relation to one another. And as revealed in the scripture and in the teaching of the church, throughout the history of Christianity, is that God is love, a communion of three persons, three unique persons who are perfectly united to one another from all of eternity, beginningless and endless, if we believe that God is love. And then if we believe that God is love as as he's revealed himself to be his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, everything he does is a result of his love, God's love for, well, everything. I mean, if God is love, everything that God does is love. And then we experience it in different ways. When we get to talking about heaven and hell, a huge difference between Orthodoxy in many Western versions of Christianity is that the experience of heaven and hell are both experiences of God's love. Heaven is for those who choose to enter into or accept God's love. Hell is the the experience of the unmitigated love of God for those who reject it, willfully reject it which we see as one of the greatest tragedies, but also essential to our belief in the free will that a person has. If love is real, it's also a result of the freedom of the person to enter into it, to participate. God could have created a bunch of beings that went around doing his will, feeling good about themselves, but there would be no freedom in it, and therefore it would not be true love. And so anytime we talk about the Trinity, we're not just talking about some theological concept. We're actually talking about the reality of love. And then everything that we experience, do, talk about, learn about, and sing about in the church is a result of that belief of God as love, a communion of persons constantly revealing themselves to us. We say, we would say themselves, but we would also say, Himself, generally, you know, God reveals Himself. But uh, that's not to confuse our theological belief that God is a perfect communion of three persons. We say, we say um, three persons, three persons, one essence, theologically. Three persons. To use the theological language, the Greek language, three hypostases. People say hypostases in English sometimes, but three hypostases, persons, one nature, the divine nature, perfectly united. And when God created man, he created man with the potential to, as we've said, to become God in a way, with a little g. We never become uncreated. We never become... Uncreated. Sorry, we never become as uncreated, but we do enter into increasingly, for all of eternity, if we choose to, we enter into union with the uncreated God, and that's His invitation to us. So, any time we talk about the Trinity, again, it's not just some kind of theological concept. Um, it's all about it's all about love. And then one of the follow-ups to that discussion of the Trinity is. Well, what about the Old Testament? Because you have people who still read and follow the Old Testament who are not Trinitarians. How did, how did you go from monotheism with God as a monad to a Trinitarianism in Christianity? And we would say we can look back and see indications of God as Trinity revealed throughout the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to just briefly touch on in our first section. And then if I have the energy, which I seem to be getting, the more I talk. Um, that's what happens with my homilies. I don't think I have anything to say today. And then 45 minutes later, no, not really, no. I've never gone 45 minutes. I went 36 minutes once, and I got a little flack for it. But um, anyway, but um, we'll do Trinity in the Old Testament and then start talking about creation, creation um, as <laughs> creation as a result of God's love. So in the Old Testament, if you guys want to follow along, sorry, we. We only have five books, but if you want to arm wrestle for some of them or share, you know, you're welcome to. Um, although I don't know what page it's on, so if you want to peek at it, and um, usually what I do during our classes is, uh, I had too much fun my first few years of catechism, and uh, I would get going on one topic. Like we're going to talk about this topic. This. Sunday, And then three weeks later, I'd still be on it. So we went to sticking with a text that we kind of go through, and then I comment as we go through the text together. And uh, this is a pretty good one, the faith, it's called. So we're doing this special study of the Trinity in the Old Testament. What page is it on? Do you guys know? What is it? 61, 61? okay. And then for those of you who are on the mailing list, and if you want to be added to the um, catechism Mailing list. Let me know, and I can put you on there. I send a I send a weekly email um, most of the time reminder. We are having a session on Sunday, and then I send a link to um, a PDF scan of these of these texts too, so that you can you can bring them up on your phone and you can look back at them. So, the Trinity in the Old Testament. So just a little treatment of this. Although the doctrine of the Trinity was not fully revealed until the coming of Christ. We find hints of the Trinity throughout the Old Testament of the Bible in which is recounted the creation of the world and God's dealing with the people of Israel. When was the Trinity revealed? Does anyone know that? Huh? Theophany. When Christ was baptized. And actually in the hymn for Theophany, Theophany means theophania, makes it sound fancy when you say it in the Greek way, but um, theophany just means the revelation of God, actually. And um, the we have different little little like theme hymns, you could call them, for each of the major events in the life of Christ. We call them the feast days in the church that we celebrate. Significant events in God's self-revelation, uh, particularly in the life of Christ, like like December 25th, Nativity, when the Incarnation was revealed. And, uh, and then we have, in, in January, Theophany, when Christ was baptized. And uh, the theme hymn says, When thou, O Christ, was baptized in the Jordan, worship of the Trinity was made manifest. For the voice of the Father bore witness to thee, calling thee his beloved Son, and the spirit in the likeness of a dove Confirm the truthfulness of his word. O Christ, our God, O Christ, our God, thou hast revealed thyself to us. Glory to thee. So if you go back to that biblical account, you hear the voice of the father, the spirit descending in the form of a dove um, and Christ himself there. The Trinity was revealed. But prior to that, not explicitly. So the book of Genesis records that when God was creating mankind, he said, Genesis 1, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And our holy fathers, and the, the, you hear in the teaching of the church a lot of times, the fathers say, there is this kind of idea that there's a, a consensus in the teaching of the church. It's revealed in the hymns, like I mentioned during the homily today. It's revealed in the hymns of the church, but also in the commentaries, the many writings of the the fathers, as we call them, of the church, particularly those of the first millennium who commented on the scriptures and the life of Christ and who really kind of solidified what the church believes. So when you hear the father's this or when you hear the term patristic comes from the word pater which means father so it means the teachings of the early christian writers but they're not the only ones who were the inspired commentators on the scripture and on the life in christ there are many that we would consider contemporary fathers even mothers of the church um, in the early days of christianity um, things were you know more traditional women didn't write as much They lived a more domestic life and men did more of the writings. So you hear that term, patristic. But the fathers of the church understood the use of the plural here. Let us make man in our image as an indication of the three persons of the Trinity. Not as kind of, as people would say, some of the royal we. We would like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch, honey. uh, Go make it yourself. My wife would tell me. But it's not the royal we. It's actually, it's the actual we of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image. So the three persons of the Trinity and the psalmist tells us that God created the world through his word and his spirit. Psalm 32 in the Greek um, book of Psalms. 33 in the in the Protestant collection. By the word of the Lord... And any time we hear that word, Word, we think of the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, or the Word of God. Christ is called the Word of God in the, uh, in the prologue to St. John John's Gospel. Um, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Now that word breath in Greek is pnevma. Pnevma, or some, some people say pneuma, but it's pronounced in in Greek. Um, same as spirit. Spirit means or that word Panba can be translated as breath or spirit. But if we're talking about the breath of God, does God have literal lungs? Does God go and blow things out? He doesn't. So that's an anthropomorphic you know view. If we think that God literally has its a lungs and breath, Um, it's always understood that the breath of God is his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the word of God is the second person of the Holy Trinity. So furthermore, one of the Hebrew words for God, Elohim, it's kind of interesting. Words are fun, you know, to, to explore. And a lot can indeed be lost in translation, in the translation of words. That's why some people get really fixated on learning the Greek language and I mean, even I did that in today's homily a little bit, talking about the word beauty. So the Hebrew word um, Elohim carries the idea of plurality. So it's not a singular, it's a plural. Thus, the name of God itself denotes the plurality of persons within the unity of nature. One of the most important Old Testament hints of the Trinity is the visitation of Abraham by three angels. And I'm going to read a different translation than you have in your text here, because it's a little easier to read. So this is from Genesis 18, and it goes like this. The Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, it's interesting, it says the Lord, singular visited Abraham, and then it says, he lifted his eyes and looked, behold, three men were visiting, standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. And he said, not my Lord's, but he said, my Lord, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And then it says, they said, do as as you have said. And one of the most um, famous depictions of it, I don't think we have one on the wall in here. There's an icon called the Holy Trinity icon, but it's also referred to as the hospitality of Abraham. And it has three figures that look like angels sitting at a table with the oak of Mamre behind them. So notice in this, in this account there's a constant interplay between the singular and the plural. The Lord appears to Abraham, yet he sees, sees three men. He addresses them at one point in the singular and later in the plural. Compare this account with what St. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the fathers of the Church of the 4th century, has to say about the Trinity. This is one of the most beautiful, but also kind of mystical and paradoxical quotations about God as Trinity. And its I heard one of my friends at one point said, orthodoxy is paradoxy. And this, quote, this quotation is going to reveal this because, because God is beyond comprehension. God has revealed himself. Yes, most definitely. But also, if God is uncreated, he's also beyond comprehension the confines of our mind. God is not just subject of our intellectual satisfaction. God is uncreated and we're created. The only reason we can interact with him in any way is because of his love for us. And so you hear in the teaching of the church a lot of what we would call mystical theology, identifying that God has made himself known, but also He's beyond knowing, in a way. And actually, if you give yourself over to that in faith, it becomes the most intellectually and spiritually satisfying reality. Because you're not going to try to spin your wheels, wrapping your head around God for all of eternity. You're going to spend the rest of your life and all of eternity seeking to enter into communion with the living God. And he'll reveal himself, and you'll know what you need to know in as much as you need to know it because God does reveal himself to those whom he loves and he loves you and he'll grant you to know that which you need to know in order to enter in to communion with him. So let's hear what St. Gregory has to say about the Trinity. It's a really, it's a tricky, mystical, but it's a wonderful quote. It's one of those that you might want to just, you know, print out and write down and, um, Have on a a three-by-five card by your desk for a while. He says, no sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch. I cannot divide or measure the undivided light. So the only icon of the Trinity, which the church allows is strictly speaking not an icon of the Trinity, per se, because the Father cannot be depicted. No one has seen the Father. I mean, Christ, what, did, what happened when, they, when the disciples asked, you may or may not know this, show us the Father to Christ. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. One of my favorite things to say about the, the Holy Trinity is that none of them, none of the persons of the Trinity, when they are revealed are there to bear witness to themselves, but always to one another, always to the authority of one another. None of them is ever expressing an identity in and of themselves, always in relation to the other persons of the Trinity. So, um, why? Because God is love. That's why. And that's how God reveals himself. So there can be no pictorial representation of the Father because he is spirit and has no depictable form. Every once in a while you will see an icon that has like an old man with a beard in the sky doing something. And like, for example, there's a beautiful icon of the burning bush of of Moses ascending Mount Sinai going up and receiving the tablets from an old man in the sky with a beard, handing down the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And that is a very rare depiction of God as father bestowing something to his child. But that doesn't mean that God is an old man with a long white beard in the sky. Okay? Um, The father cannot be depicted if you see an icon like that, the only way to properly depict it is actually for it to be surrounded in what's called a mandorla. And a mandorla is kind of like an almond shape around it, which means this is not a literal depiction, but a th- kind of a theological statement. The icons of the church, I like to refer to them as theology in color. Theology in color. They need to be read. They need to be interpreted and understood, just like the scripture does. And they speak to us in a way, in a beautiful way, um, similar to the way that, symbolically, similar to the way that the scriptures reveal something to us, but need to be understood and always understood from within the framework of the living tradition of, of the church, which has been going on for a couple millennium now. So, similarly, one can depict the Holy Spirit only symbolically. Where do we have the Holy Spirit depicted symbolically in the church? Has anyone ever noticed that? Yeah, you're basically looking right at it. Right above where I'm standing when I'm serving the services. The the dove above the altar. And symbolically depicted as a dove or as tongues of fire. Now the teaching of the church is not that this little dove appeared and they were like, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. Neat. But in the form of a dove means somehow in, in the likeness or in a revelation that was similar to that of a dove. It doesn't mean that a dove materialized and they went, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. That's pretty cool. Kind of like when at the, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples. And we'll talk more about Pentecost later. And it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon each of them in the form of tongues of flame. Doesn't mean like a little tongue that's on fire was like right above each of them. Again, it's a description of something that God was doing, the way that God was revealing himself, but not not absolutely literal, okay? And um, so the... The angels, so that that's how the Holy Spirit is depicted, either symbolically as a dove or as tongues of fire, and from both of those accounts in the scripture, from Theophany, Christ's baptism, and from Pentecost. The angels, which were clearly seen by Abraham, provide the church with an indirect way of depicting the all-holy trinity. The most famous icon of this kind is by the Russian iconographer, St. Andrei Rublev, or Rublev. And uh, I've got a little note. Oh, yeah, I don't have his icon handy, but I mentioned it. And if I if I think about it, I mean, if you look up Rublev's Trinity, you will f- you'll find it on the internet. And it's it's probably it may be the most famous icon, maybe the second most famous icon next to this one, which is called the Sinai to or icon which is found probably the most ancient icon and the prototypical icon of Christ that's located at St. Catherine Monastery in Mount Sinai. So at, at Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses, there's an Orthodox monastery. And they have a big ar- archive of ancient icons that they've kept there. And uh, this one is a reproduction of that, and pretty much any icon of Christ is some somehow modeled after this prototypical my, Probably the, the most famous icon. Christ Panto Krator, which means ruler overall of Sinai, the Sinai Pantokrator. And then I would say Rublov's icon is probably, probably the second most famous, although maybe the most famous in the uh, in the Slavic world in particular, because he was a it was a Slavic person. So um, so what makes this icon so special? It has bits th- of really simple. It has three angelic figures, almost generic looking, sitting around a table with a little bowl. They're sitting at a table. They're communing. They're eating together. And what makes this icon so special is the way in which Rublev captured the interplay between the one and the three. And I wish I had it with me. I'm so sorry. Um, In the icon, you see three angels representing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet the three, if you look at it, they form a perfect circle, and books have been written, basically explicating this icon of uh, the Trinity. But you see them forming kind of a perfect circle, a complete communion of love. There's no disharmony, no rebellion or self-will among them. They're all, the way it's depicted, they're all kind of inclined toward one another. It's beautiful. Um, No disharmony, no self-will, but there's perfect concord. One in many, motion and rest. Um, Icons of the hospitality of Abraham capture the dynamic paradox of the Trinity. And, the, and present to the faithful an image of that divine life, and we seek in um, the di- divine life. We seek in union with the the God of Triune Love. It was the first icon that I ever that I ever got, and like I said, there there are many books and articles just written reflecting just on that icon. Someone once said, "I don't I don't remember the exact quote," and it does not quite resonate with me. But uh, it's, it's an interesting kind of little piece of trivia, orthodox trivia. Someone once said, God exists because of the Rublev icon of the Trinity exists. Making Using hyperbole to basically say, this, this icon is so perfectly revealing the reality of God, that God must exist. Now, we don't, we don't have that kind of attunement anymore to the things seen we have a failure to to see and to perceive things as being revealed especially symbolically And you may remember that that word symbol it doesn't just mean like metaphor the word symbolism means um, it's another fun Greek word symbol which means bringing two things together so so When we see, for example, when we see an icon of of Saint Ignatius, we see an icon of Christ, we would say not only is it pigment on wood that's depicting something that is real but is not present, we would say in that depiction, especially within the tradition of the church, that is consistent, you know, iconographic style, it's conveying something to us, it's not just a kind of physical statement. It's actually something that reveals that which actually is. Okay, And I don't mean to sound too philosophical, but we would say, in a way, St. Ignatius is present in his icon in a very, very simple way. And I don't like this example too much because people don't go around kissing pictures of family members and stuff these days, but, but, if, but if you hold up a picture of someone you miss and you look at that picture and you say, I really miss you, I love you, there's a sense that, you're, that they're really there, that they're communicating you know, with you, that you're communing with them somehow. And, and that's how um, symbolism is understood in the church. It's uni- uniting realities that would have been sundered. One of my favorite things to say is that uh, on account of Christ and by the grace of the Holy Spirit, something we can talk about much more and we'll probably tease out, you know, over the course of sessions together. Um, But um, the the reality of the the thinness of the veil between temporality and eternity has been revealed. And in fact, in the person of Jesus Christ, I mean, the, the chasm or the the gulf between created and uncreated has been overcome. Christ is the ultimate symbol, you could say, the ultimate bringing together of two things that were separated. And if you start thinking of God's self-revelation in the church as the uniting of to what you would call realities that were separate from one another but were originally created to be one. There's only one reality when it comes down to it. That Christ is healing, healing the artificial separation that we've invited through our our willful um, moving away from God. Okay, sorry, I went on a little tangent on symbolism, but it's kind of fun. So... Okay, the life that life of the Trinity that we want to enter into was revealed to the people of Israel only indirectly in types and shadows, and they would have experienced this longing for the fulfillment that came in Christ by way of anticipation. And when Christ became man, however, the shadows passed away and man beheld one of the Holy Trinity in the flesh. And this is the essence of the Orthodox faith: the that God has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and uni- united in Jesus, that which is created with that which is uncreated. Yeah. Well, I'd like to know what you think about this. I've heard it said before. Maybe the Holy Father should have spoke about it that the prophets, and like for example Moses, since they had like a direct, noetic perception of God, they were essence true and the kind of to a in the without it. So I mean yeah I mean that would be um, I wouldn't disagree with that. I just don't know enough. But I but I would say that they that they did I mean they were they were so close to God that um for example when they departed this earthly life and they encountered God as trinity they would get they would make sense to them they wouldn't go what i thought you were one and you know what i mean they would they they would encounter god and go of course yes kind of like when people start exploring orthodoxy who are opening up to it and they go oh my god literally like my god this is what i've always believed i just never knew where to find it I liked it peeling away the layers of an onion. I've always believed in mystery, but I've also believed in, you know, theology too. I mean, you know, the, and I never knew how to how to deal with them both. It's because orthodoxy takes them and just slams them together, you know. And, um, so that's that's kind of how I would see that, though, is them not being surprised in any way. And I mean, anyone who would have believed in God most truly would would end up being a Trinitarian, you know, undoubtedly. But uh, but I haven't studied those, you know, those like writings on, you know, whether the prophets were outrightly Trinitarian or anything like that. But but what you're saying doesn't surprise me at all. Okay? that is that a satisfying enough yeah. answer? Yeah. Okay, it's 109, and um, I'm still vigorous, so... Uh, my voice seems to be coming back. It was a little raspy toward the end of the service today, but, uh, but now, maybe now that I'm sitting down and relaxing a little bit, um, I think we can keep going. And we'll see how far we get. We're going to talk about creation. You know, our faith, the, the Orthodox faith, and I know he'll talk about it in, in the text, but, but the Orthodox faith is um, what I would like to call cosmological. Cosmological—that's a kind of a cool word. Um, the word co- cosmos, cosmos means basically all that has, all that is, in the material world in particular. And we believe that God is the creator of the cosmos. And uh, I may have written it on the board the last time we we met. Um, but one of my favorite little sayings is. It just popped into my head. This happened when I was in traffic one day, I think. But uh, this is really at the core of, of our cosmology, you could say. A cosmology is what you believe about what is, particularly in the material world. So there is nothing that is, and I'm sorry if, if I go into kind of, little, kind of philosophy mode a tiny bit, I'm not a philosopher, but there is nothing that is, does anyone know where I'm going with this? It's not God. Close. Apart from having been created. By God, the basic statement. But but if it becomes a paradigm for you, if it becomes a, a manner in which you see the world, you start seeing the world differently. I was talking to someone about this the other um, the other day, there is nothing that is apart from having been created by God. That means that means uh, you cannot. See anything that has been made as apart, somehow apart from God. We're not dualists in the Orthodox Church. We don't believe in pre-existent matter, and we don't believe that matter doesn't matter. We would say, I was I love to say around Theophany time, especially, matter matters. Why? Because it's created by God. And everything that was created by God is not a result of some cosmic mistake. Or accident, but it's always a byproduct of God's what? Glory. Love. 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 I know, there are like a million words you could use in orthodoxy. Love, mystery, paradox, I don't know. You know. I have a question. Yeah. Um, I've been very interested about technology, especially AI, moving into this. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say, how does that fit into, I guess, that statement? So, yeah. So when I'm talking about cosmology, I'm talking about the, the material reality. Now, I'm not talking about the, the byproduct of man's creativity. Now, we would say, and this is a, a different, maybe, you know, a whole different track of conversation we would say that in that man was created in the image of God and to grow in accordance with his likeness, that that man, mankind was given a creative capacity, an ability to be as some. Oh, who was it? What's her name? She was Dorothy Sayers. I don't remember. In a lovely way, she said that we were created to be co-creators with God. Co-creators. But the only way that we can be an authentic co-creator is if we're in union with God. And we're not trying to to play God. And that's what what we see happening. What has happened is we have, and I don't want to get too much, again, I could have, as I like to say, have a little too much fun going off on a certain topic. And I want to kind of stay on our on track but but um, when when we when we don't when we don't know that we essentially need God and the greatest need is to be in communion I mean we were given everything that basically everything that we needed from the very beginning God one another and all the material means for our sustenance and safety and then we decided we needed something else, or needed something more, and that that has really kind of set us on a you know technological tailspin, you could say, where we're using this God-given creative capacity to become originally self-reliant, as we see in like in medical technology, when we're trying to you know at least prolong death, if, death if not prevent it, but then. To live as those who, who do not need the uncreated. But the problem is then, especially with things like AI, um, we create we create things that are even beyond ourselves, and we'll lose control of them. And the great irony is that we will become dependent on things and thoughts and technologies that we've created that are that are greater than ourselves when the one who is greater than us whom we truly need has been there all along and so it really is a form it turns into a form of idolatry at least idolatry if not worse you know what i mean and it's it is frightening i mean it is i, I mean i think about i think about it all the time just with simple things like i don't know i mean the calculators and stuff i mean you need to know s- someone There needs to be someone who knows how the math actually works. But if you just inherit a technology that does it for you, or if you inherit a system, like the internet, that does the thinking for you, then at some point in time you won't need to exercise your God-given faculty of creativity, of rational thought, because Again, we've created things that have already done it for. I call Google the new omniscient. Who needs God anymore? Because Google is omniscient. Or Wikipedia, or whatever it may be. You know? Unless you're, um, you know, unless you're snarky and you, oh, I don't do Wikipedia. I don't trust that. I go to, you know, you've got something better, you know, than Wikipedia. That you go to on the internet, probably. You know what I mean? And so um, there is there is a right relationship with technology, but the hard part is it requires discernment. It really does with with creativity in any way, and especially with the use of technology. And unfortunately, in the fallen world, um, there's corruption everywhere. There's corruption. There's you know, I mean, you you get a you, some of the latest things are you you get a Tesla car and you think you're Doing something great for the technology, and you hear about five-year-olds who are mining in Africa for the, you know, for for the um, the minerals that are used in the batteries. I mean, so anyway, we we are in a kind of a spiral, and honestly, one of the only ways that this is going to be fixed is <laughs> if the Lord returns, <laughs> or if it all collapses in on itself. Um or if we if we start returning to simplicity which is totally countercultural although there are more and more people who are getting into things like farming they're realizing that the earth does provide when we care for the earth the earth cares for us and as christians we would say why why because we were created to live here by god and given everything to go back to my original statement we were given everything that we needed from the very beginning to live a healthy happy beautiful life in communion with god and one another makes sense so but anyway you could you could start pioneering against technology and ai and i mean and some people feel that inclination or that desire i and i'm not going to tell you to to do it or not do it in, unless I got to know you more and you were s- totally seeking my counsel on, t- you know what I mean? But, uh, but I think you are right to have inhibitions, <laughs> okay? And uh, but, but one of the hard, one of the challenging things, the realities is our own ignorance to what's actually going on. And again, we could spend our whole life digging into conspiracies And thinking that we thinking we know what's what's just beyond the horizon, and then what's beyond the horizon after that horizon. I mean, so there's an endlessness to a discovery of of the confusion and corruption in the world too. And uh, as a Christian, someone as someone who's seeking to do God's will and seeking um, wisdom, hopefully not just knowledge but wisdom. um, Each of us should really strive to discern. The manner in which God desires us to live, and uh, and it's not a clean answer because each and every one of us is unique, has unique gifts and abilities, and our part of our task then is to give ourselves over to God and trusting Him, seeking His guidance and counsel, um, as we as we try to live a meaningful life with integrity. Anyway, I talked for twenty minutes about that. Sorry. That's okay. No, there was one guy that that was in class like four years ago. And he would say, oh, Father, I just have one quick question. And then we would basically spend 90 minutes talking about his. I guess we'll get to our session topic next time. So let's do a little bit of creation. Let's see. Let's, um, it's 120. I might be able to go till two. I don't know. Um. But um, let's get into this topic. It's, it's a good one. So man was created in the image of God in order to live in a perfect communion of love with God. Again, willful, you know, willful, exercising his freedom to enter into communion with God, with his fellow men, and with the physical world. One of my favorite things to say about humanity you'll probably hear me say it multiple times, is that we make mistakes, we sin, and then people will always say, well, it's just human. And we would say, no, it's not just human. It's subhuman, like to sin or to hurt another person. No, it's less than human, because what were humans created for? Communion and love with one another to support and uphold one another. That's what's truly human. So our goal in the Christian life is not to escape our humanity, to escape, it's to escape, you know to heal, I would say, to heal from, from the corruption and confusion um, that we're experiencing, but to become truly human, not to escape our humanity. I pray that you more human. Yeah. So beautiful. He was full of like these little tiny, like folksy, simple sayings that were so profound. St. Paisios, who's a, a contemporary um, saint of the church who died in 94, right? 94? Yeah. So, uh, okay. And the physical world. We don't hate the world. We don't hate and shun the world because um, because God created it. We see it as God's creation. So our, we have a paradigm shift from um, at least what I grew up with. It's kind of that the the world is there. You use it as you need it, and then basically you discard it because you don't. You're not going to need it when you go to heaven. And uh, we created what I what I would call a false dichotomy there. So in the beginning, the very first verse of the Holy Scripture. Uh, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And Genesis just means beginning. That's what the word Genesis means. So begins the Bible. You need something? Are you looking for something? Just your blessing. Oh, God bless you. It's good to be back. God bless you guys. Good to see you. Thank you for your prayers. <laughs> So it's significant. One of the things that I'll talk to you guys about is people get people get the blessing of the priest in the Orthodox tradition. It's considered um, it's a blessing. It's considered an act of love and, and respect. Um, they see they see priest as like a spiritual father, someone they love, and they express affection. And um, we kiss everything. We kiss what we love in the Orthodox Church. We kiss one another. We kiss the icons. We kiss the priest. We you know, I'll tell you a funny little story, though. When when the, the community here was was first becoming Orthodox, there were a group of people who discovered Orthodoxy. They were doing a house church and they were doing their own kind of version of Orthodoxy. They had studied early Christianity and they were trying to do their own like pseudo liturgy. You know, this is Peter Gilquist. Peter Gilquist was a part of that. Yeah. And they were meeting right here, actually. They were called the Evangelical Orthodox Church, EOC. And my predecessor, Father James, who some of you saw over the last few weeks, he, was, uh, he retired just, just about f- four years ago, um, and I took over for him here. But uh, he was a part of that EOC group. But uh, they, were, they did their own kind of funny version of the liturgy, and, but they wanted to become authentically... Christian, you know, according to the, the historical way and the patterns, and they discovered all kinds of things like, you know, the church was sacramental, which blew their minds because they never thought that was important. The church was liturgical. What? They have rituals and traditions like we they were always taught that that was bad. Hierarchical. There were bishops from the very beginning, and they, bishops, what? And so they assigned each other. Okay, you're a bishop now. You know, it was really funny. But this group of people... Was brought into Orthodoxy. And that's how our community here started. An evangelical Orthodox group merged with what's called a Western Rite group, which I won't try to get into too much, but basically a group of like Anglicans who discovered Orthodoxy and they did a more of a kind of a Western version of services. They were in communion with the Orthodox Church. And we still have a few Western Rite churches out there, but. It was kind of created as a bridge to orthodoxy for Westerners. So this Western right group and this evangelical so-called orthodox group came together to, to start our church, St. Paul. And uh, one of the early times, well, and then we have a few other churches as well that have come into orthodoxy in a similar way. And I don't know if it was here or at one of our sister parishes that that was very new to orthodoxy but the bishop was here and when the bishop comes he puts on his vestments you know like i put my vestments on you know before you you see me and i do it by myself but the bishops are more elaborate and he has help and at the end of the service when he was divesting taking his vestments off he looked at one of the guys who was supposed to be helping him and our bishop's from Syria, so he's he was still start getting the language and learning how to communicate, and he's he's very good now with English. But uh, he looked over at the guy and he said, "De buttons." And the guy, was, what? De buttons. And the guy just was like dumbstruck. He goes, "What am I supposed to do?" And so he started kissing the buttons on the, on the bishop's vestment. He goes, no, undo the buttons. So he thought, well, he's telling me to do something. We kiss everything in the church. You might as well, maybe I'm supposed to kiss the buttons. It was really funny. A cute story. Nice story. No, no, just undo the buttons. That's, that's fine. If you, you can kiss them later. No, but uh, anyway, so, um, Okay. So the Bible begins, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. So it's significant that the record of God's revelation of mankind should begin in this way. For the divine scriptures do not simply take the existence of the world for granted. On the contrary, the scriptures affirm that the world and all that is in it derives its being from God. The world did not create itself. It was created by God. And owes its continued existence to his power and his will. And so that means we have a love and respect for for for, for that which is for the world, which is created by God, not just incidental. The book of Genesis, however, does not provide a scientifically detailed account of how the world was created. It's um, we would say, The book of Genesis says who, but not how. Who created, but not how it was created. But rather, Genesis answers the question, yeah, who and and why? Genesis, therefore, is concerned with the meaning of the world's existence. Specifically, the scriptures affirm two very important points about the world and about our place in it. One, God created the world out of nothing. You've probably heard the Latin term ex nihilo. And there were many, many different theories in, in the early days of Christianity um, about how the world came into being and, 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 and in philosophy about, um, like, well, how could, how could something come from nothing? There had to be something. There had to be something to work with. And there were theories of preexistent material and blah, blah, blah. But if God is God and God is the creator, then God can create out of nothing. And so we would say that God did indeed create ex nihilo, out of nothing. And two, of all the creatures of the earth, man is unique because man is said to have been created in the image of God. The image of God. I was going to say something. It keeps flying in and out of my head. If it comes back, I'll, I'll just interrupt myself and tell you. But um, so first of all, the world was created out of, out of nothing. In Latin, ex nihilo. In the ancient world, that used to be my old password when I was in uh, college studying Bible and theology, ex nihilo. You know? oh, no one will get that password. Um, for the Greeks, the cosmos was eternal. Again, so the cosmos as that which is in the material world. It had no beginning and no end. They taught that God made the world out of pre-existent matter. Furthermore, pagan religion affirmed that the world itself is divine. That the world is divine, and that's what pantheism is. So, you know, you would say, well, this rock, they would say, if this rock doesn't have its existence apart from God, then therefore this rock is God somehow. And we would not say that. (laughs) We're not pantheists in orthodoxy but we do believe that there is nothing that is apart from having been created by God. So therefore, everything bears the stamp in some way of God's creativity and is what it is on account of him. And so we're not pantheists, but to use a kind of funny technical term, you could say we're panentheists. Anyway, words are fun. Against the prevailing opinions of the day, however, the divinely inspired prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of Christ affirmed that the world, the cosmos, and that which is, is not eternal, but was created from nothing. God alone is eternal and immortal. If God, as the Greek philosophers taught, had made the world out of some preexistent matter, then he would more properly be called the arranger of the world rather than its creator. And how would you separate God from from that that pre-existent matter? How do we know that that pre-existent matter is not then therefore God somehow? Or greater than God? For the craftsman is limited by the materials with which he works. Therefore, you know, God would be in some sense dependent on that matter and would not therefore be God. Because again, God is always greater and God is always beyond in our mystical theology of the church, we would say for any for any affirmative or positive statement that we would say about God, we have to oppose it with an opposite statement, like or or something like this. If we if we say that God is eternal, and we can perceive of God as eternal, then that's not God anymore. God has to be pre-eternal. Then, you know before even eternity, if we can conceive of eternity. And so there can be nothing that is preexistent and or greater or simultaneous with God himself. Okay, so God's not dependent on matter, and that's the teaching of the church. Such is not the case, for God created the world not because of any necessity or out of any preexistent matter, like God was just sitting around looking at all this stuff floating around and figuring out, should I do something with this? Yeah, maybe I'll create the world. of well, this dust that's floating around in floating around where I mean because there was no time or space. so how could create how could pre-existent matter God is outside of time and outside of space He's the creator of time and space. So creates more conundrums the more you think about it. So because of this, the world can in no way be considered divine. the world cannot be considered divine. The ancient pagan religions are being revived in our own day under the guise of the New Age movement, feminist theology and witchcraft, and some extreme forms of environmentalism. And it's interesting, I just want you to know too personally and pastorally, I'm very careful about labels. Oh, you're just this, you're just New Age. You know, labeling someone is pretentious. Labels can be helpful. But simply labeling someone as if you know better than they are who they actually are can be prideful and pretentious. Now, if someone identifies with a certain social movement or if they have certain behaviors that are consistent with certain beliefs, you could say, this person is, inc- like, they seem pretty liberal, you know, whatever. But we need to be careful. Because deep within each and every one of those, these movements is a search and a longing for something true. We might say that there's there's a misplaced emphasis. But as someone who believes in love, that God is love and real, real and true, and that sees people struggling to identify what is real, it doesn't do us or anyone any good for us to simply write them off and label them. Um... Especially not to make fun of them. And so when I hear things like new age, witchcraft, or, you know, we have to be, I just, I want to be careful so that, or, you know, environmentalist or whatever it may be. Automatically you create an image of what this person would be like, what bill they would fit in your mind, what category. And then no longer do you care about who they are, but you care about what your perception of them is. And so in each and every person who is struggling to, to experience something authentic and real, we should be willing at least to humbly acknowledge that struggle in them. Does that make sense to you guys? Rather than just saying, oh, they're just a fill in the blank. They're just a liberal. Oh, that's just an Episcopalian or whatever it may be, you know. I mean, again, words can be helpful, but we have to be humble in our use of them. So against, against such movements, we're at what in which I would call, again, a misplaced emphasis. The church firmly maintains that between the being of God and the being of the world, there is an irreducible but not irreconcilable gulf. And I use the language a lot of created and uncreated. The world is not God. Consider the difference between the generation of the Son and the creation of the world. God eternally before all ages begets his son from his own being while he creates the world out of his will or by his will out of nothing at the beginning of time. And again, we don't know how the son, the second person of the Trinity was generated. We use the word begotten because that's the biblical term. Christ is referred to as the only begotten son of God. And if Christ is God and we believe for him to be the son of God, he has to be God. Then it means he was begotten from before all ages, we would say, or in the the hymns of the church or before eternity, from from forever. Okay? Um, He doesn't beget, the world isn't begotten in the same way as the the son of God is. Because Christ, The Son, the second person of the Trinity, was outside of time and present before all creation. Again, built on the the belief that God is Trinity. All right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says in the book of Proverbs 9. The first step in spiritual growth is to recognize where one stands in the grand scheme of things. Man must realize that he is not his own creator. Another thing I like to say is um, I am nothing in and of myself. Another way of putting that, again, humility is, is probably the primary and biggest virtue in orthodoxy, humility. And you'll hear people like me, you'll hear, I mean, I'm, and I'm influenced by the writings of the saints, you'll hear us say stark things that are seemingly harsh, like I am nothing. I'm nothing. Why would I say that? It doesn't mean because I'm totally worthless and this life isn't worth living and, you know, I should just die and it would be better if I hadn't been born. But as someone saying, I am nothing from within the tradition of the church and our belief in God, it's a stark statement from a human person saying, I am nothing in and of myself. I didn't give myself this life. Life is not self-sourced. It comes from God, and therefore it has a meaning and a purpose. While we do believe in absolute free free will of the person, um, the freedom, freedom of the human person, we also believe that we don't have life apart from being given it. It allows us to approach life with a sense of humility and gratitude, but also... You can only find satisfaction in that statement. I don't have life apart from being given it if you are a person of faith. Otherwise, you're bound by what some philosophers might call ontological necessity, meaning ontological means essential. Ontological necessity means I didn't ask to be brought into this world, and here I am, stuck in it. Dang it. And then it creates a conundrum. But for the person of faith, they see that life, even being born into a world full of struggle, is a gift from God and an opportunity to love and enter into union with God. A unique, unrepeatable person created in the image of God, brought into the world, created for communion with the uncreated God. It's it's, it's beautiful. And then when that's your perspective, you have that cosmological but also Ontological, you could say, or essential perspective, um, then you don't lose hope. You see that the struggle is worth it, and you see that people struggle in this world of sin and corruption and confusion. Why do we struggle in a world of sin and corruption and confusion? Because we know something's wrong. We find a sense, a false sense of satisfaction in identifying what's wrong in the world. Spend all of our life criticizing other people, or political systems or whatever. But, but why, why, why do we know something's wrong? Because the world is not as it was created to be, and deep within us we know we were created for something better. So don't compromise by finding some false sense of satisfaction and just trying to put your finger on what's wrong, but also try to meet it with what is right. What do I believe? What is, what is real and true? Don't get lost in the, in the mix of, of that, that downward spiral that so many people go down, even Christians that lead them to a, a sense of despair. And then they just want to leave the, this earth. Despise the world that God created? Hate the world that God became man to enter into and to love? No. No, 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 no. How about participate in the work that God is doing in this world? Seeking to be inspired by him. Finding meaning and purpose even in the struggle. Again, because why do we struggle? Because we know that there's something different, something better that that we were created for and that this world was created for. And you're not going to start a revolution and fix everything. But you know what? You can love someone You can be kind to a unique and unrepeatable human being. You can affirm the dignity of their personhood by the way that you treat them, and that's a great miracle. In a world that wants to say, oh, you're just a stupid idiot liberal, or you're a stupid Republican. No. Okay, you might identify as one of those two things, but you're so much more than that. We have to be careful not to limit ourselves, because in denying the dignity of the other human person and the meaning of the created world, we deny ourselves the dignity that God has created us for, that, that God has given us. And it's revealed when we see others as, as they are, as created by God, and when we see the world as created by God. And you might have your own little pea patch or something where you, know, you have some veggies and you try to live a little simply and you know you're not getting it perfect, but you're doing a little bit. Better, and you're not doing better in order to be better than other people. You're doing better in order to, again, to try to love the world that was created by God and given to us as a means of communion with Him. Sorry, I went pretty deep there, but. Okay. So. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Maybe we'll just end with this um, this uh, paragraph here. The first step in spiritual growth is to recognize where one stands in the grand scheme of things. Okay, I already said that. This is what got me going. Man must realize that he is not his own creator, he's not the source of his own being, and he's not self-sufficient. And boy, do we want to think that we are. In other words, man is not God. That's one of my favorite things to say. When you get stuck in your own mind, confused and frustrated, it's okay for you to just pause and say, I am not God, and I can't be. And then the next thing is, therefore I need God. Okay? It's, really, it's a really powerful thing to, to actually pause and admit, not just logically, but again, existentially. This does not mean, however, that man's life has no meaning, or that he's a mere plaything of God. On the contrary, God created man to be the crown of the entire creation and bestowed upon him an honor of infinite significance. And the second major point, which the book of Genesis affirms, is that man is created in the image of God to live in communion with him throughout eternity. Why don't we stop there for today? It's a good point point to stop. I'll put a bookmark there and... uh, And then we'll continue our conversation on uh, on creation next time. Okay, we'll finish it up. How many more pages do we have here? Yeah, this chapter goes on yeah for another five or six pages, and I can I can have some fun with that. So so let's let's do that um, when we get together next time. We'll conclude um, with a, with a little prayer together, okay? And then uh, I'll dismiss you, and then. You want to talk for a couple minutes afterward? Okay, sounds good. Not you, but Sienna next to you, and uh, and then God willing, if you guys want to come back next week, twelve thirty, you can come back. And also, no, okay, I'm not always the best with email, um, but I am accessible. I mean, and I'll do my best. I'll try. I, I guarantee you I'll always try. So if you ever want to reach out to me via email or text message, um, you're welcome to, and I'll do my best to answer. Questions And sometimes um, it just takes, we're all busy, it takes several attempts before we connect. You know that story. With me. We've tried a couple times, but we'll, we'll make it happen. Um, I'll never give up. Don't give up on me either. You know, they're frustrated just because you know, we've had a couple failed attempts. But um, yeah, I, w- I want you all to know, like I take you seriously. I take your questions seriously. And um, I'm also really patient. I know that God is at work in your life. And I want to be a part of that. And... Um, we can't rush it. We don't want to prevent it, and we don't want to rush it. So that's my perspective. All right. O Christ, our God, who at all times and in every hour in heaven and on earth are worshipped and glorified for are long-suffering, merciful and compassionate, who lovest the just and chose mercy upon us sin, and called us all to all the salvation through the promise of blessings to come. O Lord, in this hour, receive our supplications and direct our lives according to thy commandments. Sanctify our souls, how our bodies, correct our thoughts, plants our minds, deliver us from all tribulation, evil, and distress. Encompass us with thy holy angels that guide and regarded by them. We maintain the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of thine unapproachable glory. And thou art blessed in the ages of ages. Amen. Well, God bless you all. Go in peace.